Welcome to Wake Island. I'm your host, Paul Kay. And today I'll be continuing the conversation about atmosphere, aesthetics, and escape with a literary idol of mine, Brian Evanson. We investigate the texture of his work and other work we love. As far as Brian's writing goes, we specifically talk about the open curtain, dark properties, and immobility, which are all tremendous bangers. We also get into Brian's latest book of short stories, which is called The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, which comes out this August from Coffeehouse Press. And I think it's just another jewel in the crown of his literary achievements that get under your skin and unfold into a broader Evanson-esque aesthetic. I hope that for the fans of his work, we cover some new ground that Brian hasn't discussed before. I'm assuming many listeners of the show are already familiar with his work, but if you're not, Brian is an intensely prolific author who generally writes within the horror genre, but he does so with a literary approach generally reserved for more highbrow fiction. He's also a teacher at Cal Arts. Before we get to it, please consider supporting the show or just buy me a drink. The link to do so is in the show notes. There are no ads or Patreon involved here, and I'd like to keep it that way, so whatever you can kick in is appreciated. So, with no further ado, let's get to it. Here it is, my conversation with Brian Evanson. Um, You know, it's funny, because at the beginning of the pandemic, I'd say like right after the initial lockdown, I Uh went to Utah for the first time. Oh, wow. And honestly, like my only references for Utah are, <laughs> it's the reality show Sister Wives and The Open Curtain, which I'd say is like maybe my top four mm. favorite books ever written. Oh, cool. And it was so strange to be there when everything was shut down, everything was closed. I think also it was the first place I had traveled to after mm-hmm. having been in lockdown here in New York. So, you know, when you go to another state, it's just so different. I mean, obviously it's different, but it's just, it's extra striking to see people wearing Mm -hmm. masks. Utah had just a weird relationship with all that stuff where, (laughs) you know, they, there, there was a lot of resistance to masks. Masks. I have friends who taught it, who teach at University of Utah. And um, it was just, it was very strange in Salt Lake, what was open and what wasn't. And was protesting and it was just it got very very complicated the weirdest part was is that um my girlfriend and i we had driven to uh moab and the town which i think it was like the high season was totally empty at the time and Mm -hmm. we had driven to i think it was called island in the sky yeah which is exactly like how it sounds it's like it, it you're on basically this giant plateau that's like very close to the clouds and right. It looks right. like an actual island. But before we got to it, I started to freak out. And I've never had this happen before. And I mean, I've traveled quite a bit and I'm pretty, you know, I think of myself as somewhat adventurous. And I got uh, agoraphobia, which has never happened to me before. Mm. And I started to freak out. Like, and this is a, you know, it's <laughs> a good lead into our conversation. <laughs> right, right. I couldn't tell if I was breathing or not. It got that bad where I had to be oh, like, wow. is the air actually like going into my body or am I just like going to start to pass out at some point? <laughs> and we actually had to turn around. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the uh, Utah's high enough up that, yeah, I, I know people have had, 
a similar experience where they just feel like they're not giving giving enough air. But do, don't you also feel like that the, that there's something about the psychogeography of Utah? Oh, for sure. In general, <laughs> that just lends itself to the uncanny, to mysticism, to yeah. feeling unmoored. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly um, claustrophobic place in some ways. And then it's also like, I mean, you have like the normal Mormon stuff and then you have like the, um, you know, polygamous groups and these weird splinter groups and breakoffs and stuff. And so it's like the the deeper you get into kind of like Utah subcultures, uh, the weirder it gets. My, my parents were friends with people who owned a vineyard in, in Moab, which, oh, you know, wow. the, the, the wine is not very good. But I mean, just the act of owning a vineyard in Utah, I think is like a such an act of rebellion that it's not a, you know, not a small thing. No, not at all. I mean, no. that's, it's one of the first things that came to mind when I was there was just like, Oh, I'd love to get a drink right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and being yeah. like, why is this so uh so difficult? Um, but yeah. it's funny that you say that it's so claustrophobic because at the same time, that state feels so incredibly vast. Oh, yeah. That it almost doesn't even register as a state. It almost yeah. feels like a territory. So as you're driving through, there was just something so it's just something so intense about it. Like I remember we also went to Mount Zion. And when we got out of there, my body was vibrating. Like it felt like I was buzzing and mm. there was a truck and the truck had just piles of crystals on it. Oh, and wow. They must look like they were like, I don't know, like dead rabbits or like vegetables <laughs> or something. You know, it looked very organic. Right. And I just looked at it and I was just like, that's so strange. What Like just a yeah. truck full of crystals and I'm buzzing and like crystals are supposed to trap vibrational frequencies. And it was just <laughs> such a, such a strange yeah. um, <laughs> tone altogether. I mean, it's a very weird state. And, and I agree with you. It's like, there's so much open space and there it's so spread out in a way that it shouldn't feel claustrophobic, but I feel like anytime you get a lot around people, it really feels that way. And so there's this weird contrast of just this, like these vast landscapes and which, which I love. I really enjoy that part of Utah. Um, and you know, the, the parts you're, you're talking about visiting are just, you know, my, my parents had a cabin down in a place called Teasdale, which is near a lot of that stuff. And, um, I really just love that part of the country. It's just, it's so kind of like, you know, almost alien in terms of the landscape. It's unforgiving and just very, very odd, but yeah, I mean, it's like you, you take that on the one hand, and then you have this kind of like super buttoned down Mormon thing on the other hand. And then you have this libertarian thing. And then you have like these kind of splinter groups that are like maybe militia groups sometimes. And, mm -hmm. and also like weird polygamous breakout groups, um, you know, and it's just, it's like such a weird kind of conglomeration of like different people and different influences. It's just, it's so hard to know, you know, what, what to make of it exactly. And it's like, so last time I was in Utah, um, I was hanging out with some, uh, with a, a friend who was friends with a guy who runs a bar in, in Ogden, mm -hmm. a guy who I really like. And, you know, he had like this kind of amazing set of tattoos, the guy who ran the bar. And, you know, he, he, he you know, he's running a bar. And then you get talking to him and you realize he's a return missionary um, you know, he, he was, a, was, was a true believer for a long time. And then just something like, like switched or went south or whatever. And, and now he's like, you know, um, running the bar. 
So it's like the, <laughs> you, those kinds of people, it's like there's so many of them in Utah. And, you know, I, I think there are other places as well, but it's just like that kind of like thing of like, I was once, uh, you know, a, a missionary for the Mormon church and now I run the bar is pretty particular to Utah. Or like, you know, I used to be in a bishopric. I was one of like three people running a congregation of 700 for the Mormon church. And, and now I'm excommunicated totally outside of that. Never want to go back to Mormonism. And, and so it's like that kind of like the, the range of that, you know, thinking about where I used to be and where I am now is just like, you know, intense. And there is something very particular about Utah with that. Do you think that the art of writing has supplanted some element of spirituality or become a substitute for spirituality within your life and your work? Uh, yeah, you know, for sure. I mean, I think it, it's definitely a big part of it for me. It, it satisfies a certain amount of those needs. I don't feel any kind of need for religion at this point. Um, but mm. there is something about the, the practice of writing that, that maybe feels, um, you know, partly monastic and, and partly just, just, you know, it satisfies a similar need for me. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not to say I'm not interested in spirituality. I mean, I read, um, a lot of stuff that's, that's, yeah, I'm, I'm super interested in things like the Popol Vuh and, you know, the, these, these kinds of. Um, other sorts of ways of looking at one's relationship to the w world, but the chances of me like being back in a Christian religion any time in my life, I think are pretty close to zero. Hmm. But that's interesting because, you know, from reading your work, it feels that because you were so immersed within a religious ideology, mm -hmm. it made you attuned to grifters, to mm -hmm. unreliable narrators, to mm -hmm. weird interlopers, that seems like you're really receptive to wanting to disarticulate some part of your reality. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. I think that I'm still very much involved with the conversation with, with that part of my um, past. And, and I also think it's like so much of that was formative for me. Um, you know, the, the way I kind of think about the world, that the whole structure of my thought is really evolved in relationship to, um, you know, that particular religion. So yeah, I mean, I think it's very much part of that. And I think a lot of my work, Open Curtain certainly is incredibly attached to that. And, and I don't think it's so much skeptical of the religion as just trying to think about, you know, what, what can happen when you're raised in a particular religion and things go wrong for you. But yeah, Last Days, several of my books are really kind of taking on this notion of religion and just what religion is and and what faith is and, and trying to take it very seriously. I totally agree with that, but I also feel like um, there's something about the way you form your narratives and there's a certain lack of interiority to them that mm -hmm. make them seem like there's a philosophical bent or there's, yeah. there's some sort of agenda there that I think sometimes might be a ruse and is not actually there. <laughs> but it's almost as though you're mimicking the voice of fables and of mm -hmm. parables and in a weird way, like working within that mode. And I know you work within other types of genres like right. horror, but mm -hmm. it almost seems that you're actually working within the genre of religious text. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's probably true. I mean, I'm fascinated by the way in which religious texts work. And yeah, I, I also teach um, 
here at CalArts, I teach a fairy tales class mm-hmm. and think about myths and fairy tales and fables and the way in which they kind of generate meaning. Um, <clears throat> I wrote a book on Robert Coover, and, and part of that book is just really trying to think about Coover is, is super fascinated in the way in which myths and fairy tales and fables are things that kind of give us a structure for looking at life. And then he wants to think about what happens when the, the, the ways in which it allows us to look at life no longer work. What do we do? How do we kind of rethink these, these myths that kind of support our, our, our sense of how the world works and how do we kind of reform them? And so, so I, I think that, yeah, I mean, that, that notion of something that structures uh, the w- way in which we apprehend the world is a huge part of it. And I'm, I'm certainly super fascinated by just the way in which religion works. And, you know, in something like Last Days, it's like I, I kind of construct this religion that's, you know, very bizarre. But, you know, part of the challenge of that is to try to construct it in a way that really makes it as functional and realistic as possible and also makes me as a as a writer understand why someone would want to be part of this and and with mormonism i think i i do really understand both how you know why someone would want to be part of it and why someone would want to get the hell out of it mm-hmm. and so it's the, the you know and i don't really think of myself as taking sides but i i do think i kind of approach these things from a philosophical perspective, which probably has something to do with, um, you know, ontology on the one hand and epistemology on the other hand. So ways of being and ways of knowing things. And, um, and that probably has a huge influence on just, just how I'm kind of thinking about the, the, these religions and other things that kind of structure our lives. What about your book, Dark Properties, though? Because to me, that one is the one that feels like, I think the ones that you're referencing directly address religion Mm -hmm. and philosophy yeah that one to me feels like the most parallel to an actual fairy tale and one that has in my opinion this is just totally subjective but Mm -hmm. it seems to have a philosophical that that's kind of embedded in the language in the narrative Mm -hmm. but is never actually spoken of well it's it's spoken of in the epigraphs of the book so each chapter has an epigraph that that is a kind of from a German philosopher, there's one from Heidegger, and you know, there's various ones um, that are just just really trying to think about various issues. And then, I mean, there, there's several things going on there. One of the things that's going on in that book, uh, which I don't really talk about much, is that there's there's a moment when he kind of goes into this interior space, and there's this person who seems to have been reassembled. And the things that that person is saying are um, are kind of near quotations, not exact quotations from the Mormon temple ceremony. And so if you read that book as a Mormon, it, it will have, you know, all sorts of connotations that I don't think is just someone who's reading it outside of that structure. Um, I don't think you'd really experience or have. But yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that book is about I see it on the one hand as a response to Cormac McCarthy. I see it on the other hand as kind of playing around with, with kind of Mormon stuff. I see it as creating this version of hell in some ways. You know, the sense of being in this place that seems to be that people are kind of trapped in where they can't actually die. Um, they just keep on kind of being reconstructed in some way. And then the other thing with that book that was really important to me when I was writing it 
I was doing a, a degree in 18th century literature at University of Washington. This is like 95, it's a while ago. And I started to just collect these words that I'd come across in, in books that I was reading, um, some of which were in, in um, you know, you could find in dictionaries and some of which were weird variants that you couldn't find in dictionaries. And, and just started making a list and I had three or 400 words. And so part of the, the process of writing that book was to try to introduce these words back into the language and make them function without having to explain exactly what they meant. And so there's, there's a, a ton of kind of like um, salvaged words and neologisms in that book and that, that kind of just accumulate as it goes on. And, and so that kind of notion of, of a word being kind of brought back to life ended up, I think, informing um, the content of the book, these, these weird characters who, who, you know, can be sectioned and divided and cut into pieces and then kind of put back together again. That's a very weird book. I mean, it's weird, but I also found it to be just so, um, I found it to be very moving because it, to me, the entire book was about rebirth. Yeah. And in a way, I guess your version of um, Frankenstein, but I also yeah. felt like in the context of your other work, which is usually about being disarticulated or being disembodied or mm -hmm. losing your orientation. This one was about being reassembled. And yeah. There is something, I don't know, I just, I just found it to be so incredibly disturbing, but also very deep and in some ways, in some ways mm -hmm. hopeful. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that, <laughs> if that was no, your I, I Actually, I, I think that is a big part of it. I, I think it is a strangely, it's a strange book in a lot of ways, but I do think that there's something revivifying about it. Or I do think I agree with that. I'm, I'm glad you found that. That's a very hard book to find at this point. It's almost impossible to find. So. I know, I know. I feel a little bit weird talking about it because I, before uh, this interview, I, uh, I yeah. looked it up and I saw it on Amazon and I was like, oh, $400. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, so anyone, anyone who can't find it, if they just, if they figure out a way to email me, I'll send them a PDF of it. I strongly recommend people do that because it's a, it's a really massive book. You know, the point of this show is about tone, atmosphere, aesthetics, and escape. And I feel yeah. like that book really fires on all cylinders in that context. Yeah, I'm really happy with how that book came out. I mean, it, it, it was a book that when I was writing it, um, because the language is very complex and strange, and because the plot is pretty severe, um, I was not, you know, I, I really felt like I was addressing just a kind of limited number of readers with that but the number of people who have approached me and just really like that book I've been really pleased by that you know just to go back to the language of it it really reminds me a lot of um this French writer named Pierre Guillotin yeah and another writer Michael Gira who's the mm -hmm. singer of the swans who wrote a yeah, book yeah. called The Consumer mm -hmm. it reminds me of both of those books in that it literally uses language as part of the medium which yeah. is interesting because, I mean, I think, you know, people might hear that and say, well, all books use language as part of the medium. But I think that book specifically, you have to recalibrate how yeah. you approach language. And yeah. literally, it's like, it's almost, you know, when you when you go to a gallery and you look at a painting, you, you think about the medium of paint and how mm -hmm. that moves you and how it's presented within a gallery and how that kind of changes your perception and how you function with that piece of art. And I, what I liked about the book that we're talking about is that it almost, 
obviously the language is is functioning in that same way, but it's also meant to cover you. It's mm -hmm. got this very maximal aesthetic that's very it's very yeah. visceral and it's very dense. Yeah, I mean, I think so many books that you read. Um, I mean, obviously they're written in language, but the language is meant to be something that you see through. And, you know, there are people who kind of are, are interested in the kind of concrete nature of language or the palpability of language. And I would say that this book, Dark Property, for me, is the one where I'm most thoroughly interested in that. It's something that comes up in all of my work, but but I, I really think you see it in that book in particular. And then you mentioned Giotta, who I think is a really interesting um, writer. He has he has a book called Tomb for 500,000 Soldiers, which I think is just is super over the top and crazy. And, and you feel like you're kind of entering into this, you know, um, I, I don't know, and into just a whole different Ernest. kind of mindset. Yeah. And, and it's just it's it's just beautifully done. Um, but also, you know, it's like undergoing uh, an ordeal in some ways. But it's a it's you know, if you can come out from the other side, it's amazing. Absolutely. And it reminds me that book and his other book, Eden, 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 mm -hmm. remind me a lot of listening to seeing a live performance of a band like Sun. Yeah. You know, where there's, once again, it's like you said, there, it, it is an ordeal. It is something that you have to yeah. pass through. It's implied that there is some sort of mystical, ritualistic yeah. process, and you're not listening to a guitar you're listening to an amplifier that right. is the actual medium not the right. the actual music of it but the device that carries it across yeah so you almost have to you know you have to recalibrate you're like not watching a concert you're right in a ritual you're in a trance yeah. you have to really enjoy yeah. it in that sense and i feel like that book and you know the book of yours that we're talking about dark properties mm -hmm. all kind of fit within that uh same realm yeah, no, I think Dark Property is definitely in that realm. And and you 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 probably know this. I I do you know that I interviewed Stephen O'Malley at one point and did an article on Sun? No, I didn't. Um yeah, I, I think they're they're super amazing. I did a piece on Sun and Earth, kind of a, a, a combined piece for Arthur magazine, which I don't know if it's available on online anymore or not, but it used to be at one point. Um but I, I think that the kind of thing that he's doing with these kind of just incredible you know the, the kind of droning intensity of his his music um is is uh it does kind of push you into this different space and then you mentioned michael jira earlier and um i used to be a music reviewer this was years ago and and reviewed the last um uh swan's album um soundtracks for the blind oh wow you know that's my favorite one it's yeah, i think it's really great too I, I don't understand why it doesn't get talked about all the time because it for one i guess for people that don't know it's a double cd or yeah. whatever that is described right, right, right. as now yeah. and right. it's it's it has a it's almost a concept album it's almost like you know pink floyd dark side of the moon it, yeah it's when Jarbo was in the band and it has like everything from, I guess, like kind of soundscapey stuff that has just like a, a man talking about losing his eyesight to mm. the heaviness that the swans bring to like beautiful acoustic songs. Like there's just one song on there called Empathy. It's just, it's, a, it's amazing. It's a total journey. No, I, I think there's a huge range to it. I think it's just, it's quite amazing. And then of course, after that, like, like what, um, 15 years later or something, they came back and started to do new stuff. And the, the, you know, the, their album, um, To Be Kind, which came out five or six years ago, I just think is so, so terrific. 
Did you like uh, Angels of Light? I did not like it as much. Um, mm. I mean, yeah, I liked it well enough, but I really, um, you know, I, I prefer the, for whatever reason, the, you know, uh, of the later stuff, like The Seer and To Be Kind really stood out for me in a way that Angels of Light didn't. Did you like Angels of Light? Or? I liked some of it. I mean, some of it to me felt like like a crossover between like Leonard Cohen and Rimbaud. It was yeah. really beautiful and pretty. It almost felt like Nick Cave. It was yeah, um, yeah. amazing. They were definitely, I guess I was kind of like um, hot and cold about it. Like there were some things that I just absolutely loved. And then there were other things that I just did not stick at all. Right. No, I, I think I feel the same way. It's like when, when they're good, they're very, very good. But, but um, I felt like they had less, they had, hit less often than um i felt like swans did what did you say in your review about a soundtrack for the blind uh you know it's been years ago i did it for a little magazine called grid and i just i remember really loving it i i've seen them play two or three times and the thing that was amazing the the most recent time i saw them play is it felt like they were just playing to themselves yeah. Um, but it was just, it was incredibly powerful, weirdly as a result. It was kind of like witnessing a kind of ritual or a ceremony, which is, you know, Sano is, Sun is, is like that kind of in a very different way, I think. But uh, I, I just, I, I liked it. I mean, I, I, I think I said, among other things, that I, I wish this was not their last album. And so I was actually quite glad when they came back um, 15 years later. And did you ever read his book, The Consumer? I, I didn't. Um, should I? I mean, it sounds actually from what you're saying about it that it's worth looking at. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, divided into two parts. And the second part, I think, is more just like early Swans lyrics. And, and it's not that good. But the first part, the first half, I think is mm -hmm. amazing. And it's short stories. Are, are you familiar with uh, Blake Butler's writing? Oh, yeah, I've, I've uh, blurred Blake before. Okay, like so it's very life. much like in that style, like just total immersive language, super mm -hmm. visceral, dark stories about hiding inside of the dead body of a horse and mm -hmm. being carried through the streets of like 1980s Times Square. I think it's right. amazing, actually. I think um, for me, it was my first literary love. I remember seeing Henry Rollins do a spoken word thing with my mom. Mm -hmm. I actually have a photo of this with me and Henry Rollins that my mom took and oh, we awesome. had his publishing <laughs> label and uh, getting the book at that concert or whatever, the spoken word thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and literally, yeah. I think that was the, for me, the first moment I fell in love with literature and saw it or read it as something that was totally transformative and right. immersive and, Mm -hmm. Yeah, just on the same level as, as like what we're talking about, the swans and sun. and I did read, I mean, you mentioned Nick Cave earlier, and he. I read his novel, And the Ass Saw the Angel. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I thought was actually quite quite good. Great soundtrack, too, that he made for it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's interesting to think about these people who, um, who are very good at doing one thing and, and can kind of cross over and do another thing. I mean, that's something I really admire. Um, but I haven't read the, the, the Jira novel. But it seems like you're doing something similar because I know that you're working in within several modes. You know, you have your your novels, you have your short stories, you're doing mm -hmm. screenplays, you're collaborating with people, you're also writing books under 
a moniker that fit into the franchise of Aliens and what is the other one? Dead Space? Yeah, Dead Space. Mm -hmm. Which I think is amazing. But you also studied Eastern philosophy, am I right? Uh, uh, Western philosophy. Western philosophy. So how does like, how does that factor into your fiction and all these other projects? Um, I um, did a degree at University of Washington, which was a joint PhD in critical theory and English literature. And in terms of the critical theory side, I, I specialized in, in post-Hegelian French thought. And so looked at a lot of things ranging from um, you know, starting with with Kojev and and kind of moving through French interpretations of Hegel, to people like Derrida. Derrida ended up being incredibly important to me. How so? I I just think I, the the whole um, his book A Thousand Plateaus in particular, which he co wrote with the uh, Felix Guattari, um, ended up just being um, something that was very formative for me in terms of thinking about how one might think about art and how things came together. Um, and I tend to read that book almost like it's a novel. Um, so I, I read it probably very eccentrically, but it also like in terms of thinking about velocities and lines of flight and, you know, the, there's various things they talk about, um, territorialization and deterritorialization. All those things are, are things I think about kind of when I'm putting a, a, a text together. And especially, I mean, when I'm doing something like when I was writing The, the, the Open Curtain, uh, thinking of lines of flight, um, which Deleuze and Guattari talk about is this, this, you know, this notion of you have this kind of defined uh, structure in which things have certain flows and certain paths, but then every once in a while there's something that can kind of come and cut across and make its own path and cut through it. Um, I thought about that a lot when I was writing that book, just in terms of thinking about the main character in that book and uh, the way in which he seemed to be kind of creating a space for himself that was completely outside of um, the culture that he was part of. I'm also curious, like, what was the central thesis of A Thousand Plateaus? Um, I, I, I don't know that there's actually a central thesis. I mean, it, it has this notion, each chapter is seen as a kind of plateau. Mm. And, and the idea is that, that each chapter is doing something that you can kind of put in relation with the other chapters, but the, they can be put in relation in, in any potential order. The, the kinds of things that come up there, I mean, I, I mentioned line of flight which they have this notion that things are either territorialized or deterritorialized and territorialized structures end up being where things are in particular places where movement is controlled in a certain way and deterritorialized processes um, kind of work against that, you know, can kind of move in different directions. And so that notion of just how do you kind of have a, a, a way of kind of operating within a structured or segmented world um, that that kind of escapes that um, is is something I'm I'm always really interested in, and I think a lot of my work that kind of deals with madness or deals with with people who are kind of outside of the kind of typical norm is 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 tied to that in some ways. But it's tied to it in very metaphorical ways. I don't ever think of myself as someone who's like there to kind of like uh, express a thesis of a philosopher. Um, but but they definitely, in terms of just in terms of the way I think about writing and, and about art in general. I think they've been important to me. That makes sense though, because I think, you know, one thing that you do very successfully that seems to to mirror this is that you're ve- you seem to be very interested in the idea of one reality being nested within another. 
Yeah. And there's a loss of bodily facilities that can get you to that place, mm-hmm. but it has its own set of conditions so that once you're there, your inner self becomes a stranger. Mm-hmm. And that part of you that's trying to separate from the container becomes a shadow self. And in mm-hmm. some way, I think that is, I guess, at least for me as a reader, the definition of hell. And yeah, yeah. That yeah. is seems to be like almost like a central guiding light in all of your mm-hmm. books. Yeah, I, I think that's really common in my work. And I think, <laughs> it, you know, that, that may have to do with me, um, you know, having been very involved in a particular culture and, and leaving it and having a sense of, of being haunted by it in some ways or having a self that's still kind of attached to it. Um, that, that kind of non-coincidence of the self with the self is something that my work is, is really returns to over and over again. And what about the way you engage with the culture now? Because just to spin my yarn here a little bit, but mm-hmm. you know, we're at this time where there's so many invisible software goblins and then there's IRL trolls that are out to mm-hmm. dominate and shake reality. And in this weird way, I think life has become more enchanted and in some ways closer to an animus and a cult place. Yeah. And we also use technology to speak to a world that's outside of nature that takes us further and further away from ourselves. But at the same time, the closer you get to the ghost in the machine, the spookier it gets, right? So yeah, there's yeah. like this inherent eeriness to how much decision-making power we start to give to the machine, to the algorithm. Yeah. And we've handed over so much autonomy to something that we think is actually, that is efficient but is actually encoded with so much subjectivity and it's right. built within this system that is obviously in some ways racist that we, I think we lose so much agency over our choices that it, it's almost, it's almost like forcing us to act out in these very passionate, explicit yeah. ways that we're seeing play out in the streets right now. Everything right. from like the insurrection to the George yeah. Floyd protests. Yeah. So in, in this weird way, it's like, because we're like, you know, with this like protective policing that's going on in our culture, it's no wonder that we're pining for a sense of distortion and a mm-hmm. sense of blur. And I think that's like what you capture in your work so efficiently. That's a really nice way to put it, sense of distortion and sense of blur. I like that quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we live in a very complicated time. And um, my, my friend Rick Alverson, who's a filmmaker, um, tends to think of, of um, the internet as kind of like the substitute for God for our time, that that's the thing we kind of go to consult. It's the deity that kind of, <laughs> um, and then of course, I mean, because of the way the internet works, it's, it's almost like everybody is consulting an individual God at this point um, because of just how good it is at, at kind of tailoring itself to fit what it thinks you want or need. But, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a complicated dynamic. I mean, I think that the, the way in which we think of truth has really changed. Um, and then also, I mean, you know, not only the internet, but just in terms of the way in which we think about philosophically about free will. I mean, there's a lot of people now who are questioning just the notion of free will altogether. I'm suggesting that, you know, there's, there's things going on in terms of cognitive science and brain science that, that uh, suggests that things are much more predetermined than we think is the case. And so there, there's all these kinds of challenges to the way in which we have seen ourselves. And it can't help but be incredibly destabilizing. 
I mean, it almost seems like we're building it to be that way. You know what I mean? Right, like right. it is odd that we're giving away so much agency to this thing right? with under the guise of thinking that we have more control. And now we're at this time where, you know, we're in this like perpetual state of free fall, right? Where we're right. giving over so much power to government, to outside forces, to bacteria. And this is all happening at the same time where we're also giving away our connection to the outside world through technology. Yeah. I think this might be a good segue into the glassy burning floor of hell because <laughs> I think this is your most ecological and yeah. earthbound book, but it's at this, it comes at this time where we seem to be losing that relationship and we're going further and further away from it. And even though the dialogue seems to be about us doubling down on like, yeah, let's save the planet, let's do this. Mm -hmm. We all do this through technology and we're using this as our animus belief to, as in a way to, to save ourselves from the thing that's destroying us. Right. And then we're in this, it's almost like we've entered into the death cult. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, we're in a very paradoxical time. And I mean, so the, the thing I come back to again and again, I mean, I'm, I'm very pessimistic as, as you might imagine. Well, and, like, and of course, uh, me too, yeah. as you might imagine. <laughs> You're in the right place. <laughs> right, right. I mean, and that's that's something that comes out in, in Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, too, I think. That, that you know, there is this sense, for me, it's like the more and more I think about it, the, the harder it is to not think that, like, the world would be better off if humanity just died out. But at the same time, it's like, I'm human. I don't particularly want to die out. And so how do, how do you, you know, figure that out and negotiate it? And then it's... It's also like, I mean, the, the things that we used to cling to and think were solid, we no longer think are solid. And so you either have to try to figure out a way to find the truth, which I don't think is, is completely possible, or you have to learn to kind of productively navigate the blur, make sense of it, um, and, and, and maybe make it into a kind of productive machine politically. But yeah, it's, it's just, I, I mean, I think it's, it's hard... To, to, to know where, where to go, because it's like, I mean, there, there does seem to be a lot of agreement about, you know, oh, we should do things, we should change things. But also, like, there's a, so much inertia that, that so, much, so many people seem to be, you know, feel like, oh, you know, I recycle, that's enough. And also, how much change can we go through? You know what right. I mean? Like, how many times have we changed our culture in the last year? Right, right, right. You know, at what point does it become redundant? Yeah, I mean, weirdly enough, I mean, I think this last year is shows us that we can actually go through pretty dramatic changes. We can do it quickly. <laughs> right. I mean, it's not super pleasant. I mean, I, I do not recommend 2020 to anybody, but it's also like, I mean, it, it's possible. And so, so it actually, weirdly enough, I mean, living through the pandemic made me more hopeful about the future course of civilization than than most other years have. I, to a certain extent, also agree with you, but I do feel like one of the strangest aspects to this time has been mm -hmm. that we are getting these crystal clear images of Mars. <laughs> and, and while I was reading your book, you have a chapter called The Curator, and there's a line from it that when I read this, it mirrored exactly how I felt about looking mm -hmm. at these high-def images of Mars. And it goes, but Earth was... So the archivist increasingly felt the place where humans had done their best to destroy themselves. And then once they had succeeded in nearly destroying themselves and completely devastating the earth, 
they had simply fled to the stars, hoping to find new worlds to destroy. Here is how monstrous humans are. She felt the record should say, humans are what they did to this world, their home. Here is why, once humans are extinct, they should never be brought back to life. Mm. I mean, you know, again, it's it's hard as a human to, to feel that way, but it's also like, I mean, there is something we seem to be doing tremendous damage. And so, you know, we... we and we're looking to, for a way out. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's fucking so, insane. Yeah, yeah, right. So we, we're in one world and then we'll go off to ruin others. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so strange that we're in this in-between space that we're actually watching it happen. Like here on Earth, we're in this moment that I, I think I could probably safely say is like the first globalized yeah. unified moment you know i know people hate it when i say that it's like a unified moment but it, it is we're all doing mm-hmm. the same thing i don't it doesn't matter how you feel about it we're just going through the same motions yeah. and we're also on another planet yeah. filming it showing it we are mm-hmm. projecting the same images that we had made fiction here in terms of spaceships mm-hmm. and ufos and now there's all this like ufo you know talk like oh this is a real thing, you know, Joe Rogan's talking about yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. And it's like, I found that chapter in general to just be very, or that story in general to be very striking and very mm-hmm. indicative of mm-hmm. our time and what we're going through. Oh, that's, I'm glad you feel that way. I mean, and it is, I mean, I, I feel like, I, I guess if I was to describe what I'm doing in terms of like eco writing, it's like it's eco pessimism in some ways, but it mm-hmm. is like trying to get a very clear eyed view of what is at stake and and what the problems are and what things are going to look like a little ways in the future um, if we we kind of don't get out of the the, the rut that we're in. And to me, the biggest part is the uh, mm-hmm. psychic harm of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a huge part of it. I think the psychic harm is, 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 is tremendous. And what would you say is the specific aesthetic that conjoins all the stories in this book into one specific atmosphere? Because I think all of your books of short stories mm-hmm. generally congeal into one tone. Um, so I'd really yeah. just love to hear what you would say <laughs> is well, the I mean, tone I, of the I'd glassy actually, burning floor of hell. Right. I mean, I'd love to hear <laughs> what you say about it too. Um, but but I, I feel like these stories, I mean, you know, as you say, there's more kind of environmentally directed stories in this book. I don't know. I mean, I feel like this, weirdly enough, this was the first book I've of stories I've written in a long time that I, I finished the book and thought, this is it. Because every other book that I've written, I've finished the book and turned it in and then had a story or two that I've taken out and a story or two I'd taken in, I'd put in. And with this one, for whatever reason, it was like by the time I had it and was ready to give it to the publisher, I just felt like it was the right shape. And the, the thing that a lot of my collections do is they, um, it's the stories are often dissimilar in terms of setting or other things like that, but I feel like they kind of create a texture that you move through. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like the, one of the textures in this book is this kind of return to the idea of uh, the earth and what the earth is um, and, and our relation to it. And, and just, you know, the, the, the sense of us kind of destroying or ruining the earth. But there, there are other things I think that kind of cycle through as well. There's, there's the kind of return of the first story that you get in the final story, 
there's this sense of, of humans encountering things that are not so human um, that they don't necessarily know how to do it, know how to deal with. I don't know. I'd have to think about it. I mean, I feel like it's fairly varied, but like there's, I think if you, when you finish the book, you go away with a sense of, um, I don't know, maybe I should ask you what you go away with a sense of. You know, I've read all of your work mm-hmm. and I would say this one is most rooted in a sense of pathos. I feel like mm. this is the one that I felt the strongest sense of sadness from. Yeah. And I think a lot of your other work, it, it has that, but it's more of an aesthetic while this one, the resonant tone of it left me with a sense of sadness. And it's hard for me to say if, if that's just like <laughs> me in <laughs> the time. Right. Right. And not to say that, not to take anything away from the book, but it's just like, um, it feels so perfectly matched for this time and so yeah. many of the things I've gone through. I mean, yeah, it's funny just from reading it, I just keep relating it to like different times in my life and different stories of my own, just because I think you know, I have like right, <laughs> I'm just right. sitting by myself at home. But right, like, right. I think if I, and this might, I don't know, I'm, you know, my apologies if this sounds like super no, 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 or something. Good. No. But when I, when, you know, when I finished this book, this, the one thing that I thought about from my past was when I was a kid, I grew up in South Florida and I'd mm-hmm. say around the time that I was like 10 or 12 or something like that, my parents had moved into this new development and it was being built. It was only like half finished. So there was like 20 homes and they all looked exactly the same. And I remember my parents had two lovebirds and we had just moved in and like days ago. And I remember just like running around outside and it was like right by a swamp, like a crazy swamp, like uh, where it was like, literally I was out there and I was like, wow, that's an alligator. <laughs> you know, like that's it. Right. Like just totally weird kind of like backwoods Florida, but also with this like, you know, Ballard style, right Um, you know um (laughs) condo you know duplex homes and i remember there was a moment where i couldn't find my home like i was like oh my god everybody just moved in here and all these fucking homes look the same and i remember going into this house and being like i'm not sure if this is the right place but when i went in there was a birdcage in it with two lovebirds and i was like oh this is my house and i remember going in and sitting down and just kind of bugging out over the fact that like, I was like, damn, this furniture just seems different. And somebody was taking a shower and I was like, oh, it's my dad's taking a shower. Like this will all yeah. get straightened out. Soon. Right, right, right. And, you know, the longer I stay there, I think I was there for like 10 minutes or so, just feeling really like divorced from reality and like really ripped away <laughs> from like a sense of love and family and, yeah. and really just kind of concentrating on those lovebirds. And, and then there was a certain moment where I was like, holy shit, this is not my house. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah. and leaving, but eventually I found my own home and I never told my parents about it, but I just remember there was that that headspace that felt so vivid so uncanny yeah i mean this sense and you feel like it both is and it's in your house at the same time which is just just maddening in some ways and the glassy burning floor of hell feels Mm -hmm. like that (laughs) i mean i i think that's a good good description of it and and there is like i mean there's this kind of pathos is a good way to think about it and there's a lot of kind of like um you know sense of 
of helplessness in terms of, you know, what does one do with the world, even though I think that only comes to the surface in a few stories. But I, you know, I, I think the very last story in the book ends something like, mm. um, don't open your eyes, don't open your eyes, but eventually she did. And so that notion too of like, you know, not wanting to face up to whatever it is, and it's not an environmental thing in that story, but not wanting to face up to whatever is, is there with you. Um, and then eventually having to is something that I, I, I think is, you know, behind a lot of these stories. Yeah, yeah. And it's like recognizing the distance between yourself and other people that are close to you. Yeah. And like, I don't want to like probe for something from your personal life, but I wonder, <laughs> is there something that you've been pillaging from your memory palace that you return to or that has been like part of this book? Um, you know, I, I think that the environmental stuff, I mean, that that is just being alive. And, and you know, I, I have an earlier book, which is called uh, Immobility. Which I loved. Oh, I'm glad you did. Um, but that, which is also set in Utah. Um, but that that's where I first started to kind of think pretty seriously about these issues of, you know, what's our relationship to the world? Should we be here? Should we not be here? Um, what What do we do? Um, and so that kind of circles back in these stories. There's actually stories that I've written since then that are kind of moving even more in that direction. There's a, there's a piece that's online at tor.com called Solution, which is kind of very much a piece of, you know, if, if you like that, the story you mentioned, Curator, then I think it's very much in that vein. I was going to say, maybe uh, tell the audience about what immobility is like. Yeah, I mean, that book was a book that um, it started because someone asked me to write a description of an imaginary book that I hadn't written for a website. It was someone who's a book designer and he was going to design, he did design covers for it. And so, so um, I got a fake blurb from Jeff Vandermeer, had this book cover that he'd made and then had written a description that was like, you know, just, I don't know, 500 words or something of, of what the book would be. And um, an editor I was working with at Tor, um, uh, on these, these other books you were talking about, like the aliens, no it wasn't the aliens novels, the dead space novels, um, saw that and he was like, you know, why don't you just write that book? And, and so I did. And so it kind of, it was a book that came from an imaginary book. It was kind of in the strange space. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a book about someone who is not human anymore um, and doesn't exactly understand what he is and doesn't exactly understand his obligation to, the, the community that he came from and is trying to figure that out and is living in this kind of collapsed version of Utah. And, and when I wrote that book, I actually charted his path. He has this kind of quest he agrees to do for the people who are still human or still think of themselves as human. Mm -hmm. And I, I charted that path by using Google maps and just thinking about, you know, everything I could destroy along the path to a certain place in, in Utah. Uh, and, and, uh, yeah, but it, it ends up being very much about, you know, what's, what's your obligation to the people you're connected to? What does it mean to be human or not human? It's very much a post-human novel and thinking about those issues. And there's a, there's a novella I wrote called The Warren, which is kind of attached to it, I think. It's, it's different, but it, it, it almost feels to me like it's in um, you know, a parallel universe that, that's similar, but, but distinct. And so much of your work deals with so many of these themes, like doppelgangers, cults, amputation, yeah. characters that mentally unravel, 
so much of it is desolate and hallucinatory. There's always this sense of despair, insanity, phantom limb consciousness. It's mm -hmm. always experimental within a genre. And then there's like this sense of estrangement and the uncanny, like, where do you want to take this aesthetic? Do you want to perfect it? Or do you want to crystallize it into another thing? You know, I, I feel like everything I write is is looking at a facet of something and trying to figure it out. And then I keep on looking at that facet until I can figure, I, I understand enough that I can turn to something else. And so, so much of my work starts in relation to things I read or things I think about or the thing in the previous book that I felt like whatever I was able to do with it, just th that book did not answer. And so, so I, I feel like it's curiosity as much as anything is a kind of motivating force for me in terms of what the next book is going to be um, and trying to just understand things. I, I think I, I have this simultaneous thing where I feel like I'm obsessed with understanding things and also understands, understand that things ultimately, the, the more and more closely you look at them are just not able to be understood completely, that there's a limit point to that. And so that, that kind of, you know, that, that kind of complexity of knowledge is something that just really appeals to me. Hmm. But it also seems like you're working towards a sense of destabilization. Oh yeah. And you always want to invoke this sense of disorientation. So I'm curious what about that is so appealing to you? You know, I, I think it was when I was growing up, people were so certain of what um, was the reality of things. And, you know, I think especially with Mormons, the idea that there's certain ways the world is, there's certain ways that, that life after death is, all these things, they had very, very direct answers. And then there were things they didn't have answers for at all. But I, I think that kind of growing up in this kind of culture in which you were given all these supposed answers, and then also seeing all the gaps and flaws in those answers made me really interested in kind of taking things apart. Um, and then also my, my dad um, is a physicist mm -hmm. um, and a serious scientist. He's also Mormon, but he also taught me to be just incredibly skeptical. Um, all my brothers and sisters, he really taught us to be skeptical. And, and I think that as much as anything, um, you know, made me scrutinize the kind of certainty that people had or, or the kinds of beliefs that people had. And, and I think that weirdly enough, I mean that, that point of skepticism where you understand the instabilities um, that, that are kind of part of human existence and really can't be escaped is a more solid place to stand than the falseness of thinking that, that things are one way or another. How much does mood relate to the horror genre? Because I think this is, this is your medium. This is what you work with it. And yeah. to me, horror, what makes it compelling is that it almost entirely relies on mood and atmosphere. Yeah. But it still has to be very nuanced because I think there's this weird tendency within that genre to borrow from other projects and other work with pre-existing ideas around characters, yeah, yeah. world building and aesthetics. Like, I don't know, like right now, for example, in movies, there's just this there's this weird push for rural haunting narratives that borrows from, I think, The Witch and to a certain extent, Hereditary. 
So is that something you think about when you're writing? Because uh, obviously you're, you are working within this mode and it is something that you're also pushing up against. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's, it's something that I'm always interrogating, interrogating to some degree. Um, I didn't think of myself as a literary horror writer or as, or as a horror writer for many years. And then I guess it was Peter Straub who first, he wrote a blurb for me. I think it was actually for the open, it wasn't the open curtain, it was for Last Days, in which he talked about me as, as writing horror in a very particular way. And that made me kind of reconsider and rethink about, you know, where, where I stood in relation to that genre. Um, but but I, I do think there's this funny thing about genre in, the, in terms of the ways that we define different genres are not parallel. So when we talk about science fiction, um, you know, we, we think of it as having a relationship to the future. That's the kind of chief thing. So there's a kind of time element. When you talk about romance, um, the, the romance is the main thing. So there's this kind of relationship element that's central to it. Um, Stephen Graham Jones, who's a really, really interesting writer, um, does a lot of horror stuff, actually wrote a couple of romance stories just to prove to himself he could do it. Um, and they're actually pretty good. But, but so you have those. And then when you talk about literary fiction, it's like the definition of that seems to have to do with style for people. So it's, it's something completely different having to do with the use of language. And then when we talk about horror, um, I think it's mood is exactly right. I mean, that's the thing that makes something horror is its mood. And as a result, something can be feel like it's science fiction, but because of its mood, still feel like it's horror. Can feel like it's it's literary, but because of its mood, still feel like it's horror. Or feel like it's fantasy, same thing. And and so it's just for me, it's less a genre than a mode. It's something that mm. I can kind of manipulate and apply to other ways of of thinking about genres. So, for instance, in gla in the glassy burning floor of hell, there's there's pieces that seem fairly directly in the mode of horror and there are pieces that seem more literary and pieces that seem you know almost like they're in a different genre and there's the you know several kind of science fiction pieces for instance and that for me is is one of the big appeals of it is is just that it's it's more about an outlook on the world and a way of thinking about the effect of writing than it is a particular uh, genre in the traditional sense. Do you wonder what this year is going to manifest as within younger people? Like, I have the feeling there's going to be some residual bitterness that's going to separate them from older generations where we're seeing this as like a time of reset or whatever. But mm -hmm. part of me wonders if, are we raising a generation of Cronenbergs or are we raising a generation of Wes Andersons? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think <laughs> I'm really curious to know that. I mean, it's very funny because it's like, so for me, as someone who has a, I have an eight-year-old son, Max, and and so he has been doing school from home. My wife and I are both at home. We're both writers, um, and and then I've been teaching from home as well. And then also, I'm right now I'm working in a TV room for HBO, doing that from home. And so all that stuff, you know, it's it's weird to suddenly have every aspect of your life um, within. In our case, it's about <laughs> seventeen hundred square feet, you know. And then, but the funny thing is, is Max, who's eight, um, his brain is so plastic at this point that he's incredibly adaptable. And so he has really coped well with the pandemic. Um, I have done okay with it. We both, my wife and I have both done okay with it. Um, but, but the funny thing too is like the, um, 
I've talked to people who don't have kids who are a little younger than me, um, who for them, the experience is like, I hate being in my home. I'm totally bored. I don't know what to do. I have too much time on my hands. And my experience is exactly the opposite, which is it's like, I don't have enough time. I have to spend all this time kind of preparing for classes by Zoom. Um, I'm also at the same time as I'm doing that, I'm helping my son do second grade. Um, and so it's just, it's a really, I think that the, the, the distinctness of people's experience of the pandemic, depending on their personal circumstances is really, you know, really varies. But I, I do hope with, you know, with really young kids like that, that it's something that they, you know, just it's something they absorb in a way that, just makes them more flexible. I mean, Max has, has done fine with it. And we were super worried, worried about him kind of early in the pandemic. We thought for sure that he'd have the hardest time with it. And and he he just didn't. I mean, he was able to kind of cope with it. I think eight is like a very pliable age. I think it must be very different yeah. if you're 14 or 15 and just starting puberty and just totally cut off from people yeah. and socializing, which is such a... I mean, at least for me, like I was just such a loner weirdo yeah. <laughs> throughout that entire time. I can't imagine if I had the excuse of just being like, oh, fuck, I don't have to talk to anybody. This is right. Right. This is well, I mean, and then the students I work with at, at, at uh, Cal Arts, I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, some of the, the students who are 18 or 19 or 20, it's like, I mean, they, some of them really struggle. I mean, others don't. And I, I don't quite understand what the difference is but I think you're right I mean I think so so the the thing for me that's interesting is that um this book which is going to come out in in August of 2020 the glassy burning floor of hell um was written obviously before the pandemic even started but it's such a pandemic book it's but it, I, I think it, it feels like it totally feels like a pandemic book um and so that's so strange and and, and, you know, to be honest, I mean, the stuff I've written during the pandemic probably feels slightly less pandemic-y. It's always going to, because of who I am, feel a little bit pandemic-y. But, yeah. but, uh, yeah. but, but it maybe feels... I mean, a lot of it is about... There's, there's, I've done a lot of stuff since this book that's more about post-human existence or, or humans related relating to, to, to machines or non-humans. And so there is a sense of trying to figure out these connections and um, uh, you know, um, trying to kind of see outside of the box that we're in. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, one of the first stories I wrote during the pandemic is about people on a spaceship in which the um, oxygen uh, uh, rebreather apparatus has broken down and them trying to figure out what they're doing. And that probably was really directly related to the early days of the pandemic and you know, all the worries about ventilators and things like that. From the beginning of the pandemic, I've just had so many phases within mm -hmm. the pandemic. And right now, life is beginning to come back to normal. And there's almost like a weird sense of despair about that, you know, where I'm yeah. just like, oh, man, it was so nice to not um, compare yeah. myself to everybody, to not right. see the things people were doing and, and wishing that I was doing that as well. And it was like, there was definitely like... Um, I had different types of anxiety, but that right. specific one had gone away and now it's like starting to come back. But I do remember just the the different stages of it. And to me, one of the most profound stages was towards the beginning, right? When it was like lockdown was a real thing and mm -hmm. my dreams became so vivid. 
Right. And I thought that was interesting because like they weren't vivid. Like I had like crazy cool dreams. I had mm-hmm. dreams that were about, they were like a mix of like different schools, offices, mm-hmm. public places. And yeah. Malls. Yeah. And right. I would just go through these spaces and the people that were in them were people that I would see in passing. Like they were not, they were no, none of my friends. There were none of my neighbors that I liked. There wasn't, my yeah. friend wasn't there. And I realized that like my brain was actually compensating yeah, yeah. for the lack of not even stimulus, but just the lack of, um, I don't know, me, like me doing nothing and being right. out in the world. And I had just, they were so intensely sad. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and there was nothing actually sad happened in them, but I would wake right. up with this, this overwhelming sense of sorrow that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't shake. Right. No, I, I had uh, less the sorrow, but I had a similar experience where um, I would have these dreams about places that, um, that were not exactly recognizable places, but it was about me moving through places with people in them. And, and it was like my, I do feel like it was my brain kind of compensating for the things that they used to get during the day right, <laughs> and right. giving it to me at night. So, I mean, the p- pandemic's been hard in all sorts of ways, but there is this amazing thing of like, there are all these social obligations that I used to feel like I had, which I don't have anymore. And it's like, it, it's, I, it's incredibly freeing to know that I don't have to see Someone who I kind of want to see, but maybe yeah, don't want to yeah, see yeah. that much. Now you just have to do somebody's weird ass podcast. <laughs> right. Well, you know, that's, that's okay. I do that anyway. Um, but, you know, but it's also like, I mean, the other thing that's amazing is it's like, I thought I would miss things like readings and things like that. But no. the, number of, the number of readings I've been able to go to um, yeah. on Zoom, like, you know, the fact that I could see, you know, someone read um, who's from another country on zoom you know is is just amazing i totally agree i mean i've never gone to more readings and book launches and in a weird way yeah have been more connected with the people that i think are are meaningful to me so yeah. i guess maybe in some sense maybe that's like what i'm freaking out about it's just like i don't want that to uh go away i think yeah. i think a lot of people have they're going to walk away from this time with some sort of new defense mechanism yeah some sort of new way of interacting with the world and seeing themselves that i don't want to get rid of you know what i mean like this was a huge uh year of growth yeah i mean i'm i it's it's just a year we had and and there's no changing it and it it there is something about going through an experience like this where it just it really makes you think about the world differently i mean even things like people who the whole idea that you could never work from home that so many companies had. Yeah. And now it's like, as it turns out, we can. We can do it just fine. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess this is like a way to um, maybe close this out, but I've recently interviewed a student of yours named Rose Anderson. Oh, I love Rose. Yeah, she's great. For one, she wrote this incredible incredible book called The Heart and Other Monsters. Mm -hmm. But she was also just somebody that was so tough and strong that I was so taken by and I found it, I just found her to be so awesome and unexpected. And she wrote this memoir about her sister dying of a potential overdose, potential murder. It also deals with grief and addiction and family. And it's really beautiful, but 
one of the things that I talked to with her was about you being her, her mentor, which I thought mm-hmm. was really interesting because, you know, the book that she wrote is not in any way related to what you do. And right. we talked about this a little bit, but I was really fascinated about what that relationship was between a teacher and a student, especially someone like you that has such a specific and defined aesthetic yeah. voice that was able to also help shape this amazing, this amazing book. So I don't know, I'm just yeah. curious to like hear more about that. And I would love to know, like, what did you learn from being a mentor for someone as unique and special and talented as Rose Anderson? Well, so Rose is, is she's, she's a great writer. Um, and in fact, I, I think I was one of the first people to meet her at CalArts because she came out to, to decide if, she wanted to to come to CalArts and visit my class. And, and the thing I guess I would say is, is my own sense of, I, I read really widely and I really love to read things that are different from me um, because I feel like when I read things that are different from me, um, I think about them as me and it sometimes gives me things that, you know, can be particularly just me. Um, but, but so I, I always have been very keen on her work um, and, and just working with her, I mean, I think that things we, we talked about were, you know, it, it was very easy to just think about structure and how you put things together and, and, and just really focus on that. And, you know, as you say, it's like, it's this incredibly moving, heartfelt book about, you know, what it's like to lose a sister and not know exactly the circumstances of that. And so, you know, good teachers um, try to put themselves in a position where they're taking a book on its own terms. When I was an undergraduate at Brigham Young University, there was a writer there named Daryl Spencer. And this was in, in, not in a class I was in, but in another class, someone told me about this. Um, someone turned in a science fiction story and Daryl didn't read much science fiction, um, but what he did was he, he went and he got a couple of um, year's best science fiction volumes and read them from cover to cover between the time the story was told, turned in and the time um, they talked about the story. And, and then he was able to kind of, you know, at least think about this in the context of these other things. And I've always seen that as a model, that, that what you should do as a, as a teacher is, is, you know, have enough kind of depth and experience um, to be able to help students in the way they need to be helped. And so, you know, as a result, it's like, you know, Rose did this amazing book that probably no one would think of me as someone that you'd necessarily want to work with with this. But Rose and I also have this huge interest in um, murder mysteries and in, um, you know, um, true crime. Mm -hmm. And so we have these kinds of things in common um, that we could connect to. Um, We had other things aesthetically we, we were tied to. Um, and, and then also like, you know, as I said, it's like my, my own reading, I read about 300 books a year and it's pretty varied. And so I, I at least had things I could point her to, but also she was just, you know, very, very talented from, from word go. I gave her the, you know, I really wanted her to finish a draft of that book for her thesis and she managed to do it and worked really hard and and that just made me feel like I needed to work all the harder to help her make it as, as good a book as it could be but it was just it was a lot of hard work and and sincere effort on her part I think that all came across in the end product uh, I loved that oh, yeah. book and I loved hearing about 
her experience in general, but I loved hearing about her working with you. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, it was unexpected, but at least to me, it made perfect sense. So I guess as a, as a parting question, I'm just curious outside of writing and reading, what's been your greatest escape during all this? Uh, that's a good question. Um, writing and reading have definitely been part of it. Um, you know, the, the thing that I've done a lot more during the pandemic is I, I've been going on two walks every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have where we live in Valencia, California, um, we have these paseos, which are these kind of really wide walking paths, but they kind of go out to a, a, a nature area. And, um, you know, a, a kind of basically it's like a fire break. Um, and so so every day I've been walking for, you know, 30 or 40 minutes twice a day and, and have gotten so I know like um, certain birds and certain animals. And, and that for me is just been a huge kind of relief just feeling like even if I'm not going around people um, I'm, I'm kind of in these spaces I'm walking I'm seeing these creatures you know there's a pocket gopher I often see that I, I really like and there's a, you know a couple of, of, of other birds and other things so yeah so so I guess that as much as anything which is not really a hobby <laughs> um, yeah I listen to a lot of music I've always been someone who listens to a lot of music and what's in your orbit Weirdly, I think because of the pandemic, I've been going back to stuff I used to listen to when I was younger. Same. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it may be just reassuring or some, something. I mean, it may yeah. be grounding. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Because yeah. this shit I've been listening to is not good. Like, I, I started listening right. to, like, rap metal I listened to in the late 90s and being right, like, right. why is this making me feel comfortable? Right, right, right. not right. a good song. But it does. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not even a question of whether it's good or not, but it's it's reassuring or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then I also like, um, I have had this, this I, I've kind of gone back to prog rock, which I, I didn't really get the first time around, but kind of experienced a little bit in the 90s when the Noi albums were reissued. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but also there's this band called Vandegraaff Generator, um, that I have found myself listening obsessively to. Um, and it's just, you know, it's really super proggy and super rock opery. Um, and it really works for me in ways that I can't explain to anybody. So <laughs> it's it's like one of those kind of semi-embarrassing things. That makes perfect sense to me. I mean, it may be that. It's like, it, it it's it's epic and it's large and it feels like you can kind of live in it. But weirdly enough, I mean, the last thing last concert i went to before the pandemic started was in january of 2020 and and i went and saw bauhaus play um, which was a band that i loved as a kid and had never seen and they uh it was amazing it was really great and it also like fed my 18 year old self just so nicely um that you know it was just it was really great and and then as a result i ended up for a while just listening to a lot of bauhaus and tones on tail and david jay and daniel ash that that kind of thing that's so good i think that's a great place to end it brian (laughs) thank you so much for uh speaking with me this is really this has been cool it's my pleasure yeah thanks again paul appreciate it